Welcome to How to Save a Planet. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. This is the podcast where we ask, what do we need to do to address climate change? And how do we make those things happen? So there's an election coming up, you may have heard, and we figured that as a climate podcast, we should probably take some time to compare the candidates' climate plans. Exactly. So who do you want to start with? Let's take the easy way out and start with Trump's plan. Let's do it. So we went to his website. I'm going there now, donaldjtrump.com. I'm going to go there too. Okay, and let's just find the section on climate. There's no climate section. Alex, there, there's just this page that kind of lists some of the things that he's done in the last four years related to energy and the environment. I'm looking at his list of what he's calling achievements. There's stuff about opening oil and gas leases in the Gulf of Mexico, permitting oil pipelines, talking about how the Trump administration is pulling the United States out of the Paris Climate Agreement, the giant global agreement on reducing carbon emissions. So that's what he's talking about on the website. And what we know is that this administration has rolled back around 100 environmental regulations from fuel economy standards for vehicles to the clean power plan, which aimed to reduce emissions from power plants. And not only is there not a plan to address climate change, on this energy and environment page, there's literally nothing that even acknowledges climate change is a threat or a problem or a thing that is happening at all. Like the phrase climate change or global warming, they simply do not appear on the energy and environment page. It's sort of horrifying. So should look at Biden? Yeah. So I've spent some time reading Biden's plan. And well, first, he actually has a climate plan. And it includes some major and ambitious commitments, including eliminating fossil fuels from our electricity by 2035, so in just 15 years, Mm -hmm. ensuring all cities have good zero-emission public transit, weatherizing millions of buildings to make them more energy efficient, and creating millions of green jobs. Pretty good, especially compared to the alternative there. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And, you know, I don't know if we're going to want to make a habit of endorsing political candidates on this podcast, but We're in the middle of this really big election where one candidate is refusing to acknowledge that human emissions are causing climate change, that climate change is a problem. And the other one actually has a plan to address the threat we're facing. So I think we're going to... Don't be nervous. We can do this. I think we should maybe endorse a candidate. Are you ready to take this step? I've already taken this step out. Oh, you have. I've, <laughs> I've had calls with Biden's policy team. I've donated. I've hosted fundraisers. I've written like Twitter threads about how surprisingly legit Biden's climate proposal is. Yeah, I'm in. I'm not in the way you are. For, for most of my life, I've been working as a journalist where you don't really endorse political candidates. And there's good reason for that. You know, you're covering both parties. You want to be talking to them. You want to be providing the same level of skepticism to both of them. But this does feel different. I was waiting for that, but (laughs) yeah, I don't know that it's terribly controversial to say that we as a climate podcast favor the guy who actually has a serious 
climate plan grounded in science. So if Scientific American can make an endorsement for the first time in their 175-year history, then maybe we can make an endorsement for the first time in six episodes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Here it is. We're breaking with six episodes of tradition and officially endorsing Joe Biden for president. Alex, I'm so proud of you. Oh, thank you. (laughs) What a big moment. (laughs) It felt weird, but good. (laughs) But just because we have endorsed Joe Biden, it doesn't mean that we're going to stop holding him accountable. We will keep listening to what he says about climate in this campaign. And if he is elected, we will report on whether he lives up to what he has promised. And honestly, we've got good reason to be paying close attention because a couple of months ago, Biden's plan certainly wasn't something I would have endorsed. It was one of the worst plans among the top primary candidates. And it's not that I or we have lowered our standards. It's that Biden actually really stepped up. And in some ways, he was forced to. If you look back to the last presidential election, for example, climate was hardly on the agenda. And yet this election, despite all the really big issues that are at stake, COVID, the economy, immigration, racial justice, I think you and I could argue that this election, in many respects, has become a climate election. CNN, for example, held a seven-hour town hall on climate with all the Democratic candidates. And climate change has come up in both the presidential and the vice presidential debates so far. Compare that to 2016, when there was literally not one single climate question in any of the debates between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. So what happened? Well, it turns out there's been an enormous sea change in American politics over the last couple of years. And today on the show, we're telling the story of that change, how it turned this election into a climate election, and how it turned Joe Biden into a climate candidate. And a lot of that change had to do with this audacious plan hatched just a few years ago by a bunch of young people. That's coming up after this quick break. Oh, but first, a quick warning. There's some explicit language in this episode. The story of how this election unexpectedly turned into a climate election, that begins a couple of years ago, before Donald Trump was even president. And right at the center of this story is a young activist named Varshini Prakash. She started organizing around climate change in college. And she was part of this big protest that was being held ahead of the 2016 election. It was supposed to bring thousands of young people to Washington, D.C. to demand the politicians listen to them on immigration, social justice, and climate change. And then the day came, and it was disappointing. The turnout really wasn't that big. Varshney remembers organizers fighting amongst themselves. And it certainly seemed like there was no reason for politicians to stop and listen to them on climate or anything else. I remember walking through the streets, just utterly dejected, holding a sign and saying, something has to change. Who had been the organizer of this event that you were at? Oh, me. You had been the organizer. So this was your rock bottom. It was my rock bottom. And it was also the moment that I think was the kick in the butt to imagine new possibilities. Me and my best friend, Sarah, and... One or two others grabbed lunch, Ethiopian, I remember it was that. And I said, we have got to start 
a new movement in this country for young people. At that moment when you're saying to your friend, we need a new movement, what were you imagining? I was imagining a few things. One, I just desperately wanted a movement that took itself seriously about the level of power it was going to take to overcome political gridlock and partisanship in this country. That was essentially not about that. That was I'm trying to say this without swearing. What's the deal with swearing? You can on swear. This podcast? Swear. <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> Give it to us straight. Yeah. I was like, we need a movement that is not going to fuck around. From Varshini's point of view, the climate movement was failing. It needed to bring in more people, a lot more people, and a much broader group of people than it ever had before. One of the great failings of the climate movement has been an inability to build across class and race. And I don't know if we're going to be fully successful as this, but to me, part of what we needed in a new movement was a movement that took very seriously a commitment to building multiracial, cross-class movements. You're essentially saying, like, I want a brand new movement, and I want it to be way more inclusive, way broader, and ultimately much more powerful than all the existing movements that have been out there for, like, 40 years or something. That's a big thing to want. Did it feel like a big thing to want? Or, like, how did you feel about even having that desire? It did feel big. But you know what? I felt, I didn't feel scared thinking about it. I felt relieved. I think what was, I felt totally relieved. I, I think what has been causing so much anger and angst over the few years prior to that was realizing that everything, like the work I was putting into the movement was amounting to nothing. Right. It wasn't having impact. So why not dream big? Why not play to actually win? So they started figuring out how do you make change, real change, in the United States of America. They looked at past movements, the civil rights movement, the movement for marriage equality, the Tea Party, indigenous-led efforts, the New Deal, and asked, basically, how do you build a movement that doesn't fuck around, that takes itself seriously? And they did that for a whole year. We spent week after week after week, understanding the way that transformative change gets made in America, understanding the level of power you have to make to shift public opinion, to pass legislation. What surprised you? Like, what were the effective tools or approaches that maybe you wouldn't have predicted before you went into mm. this phase of deep learning? I would say one is that Public opinion feels almost immovable oftentimes. Like, how many times have you heard someone just say, you know, oh, well, the public doesn't care about the climate crisis or climate change will never matter in our politics. That's just a given. We just didn't stand for that. We were like, are you kidding me? This is the biggest crisis facing humanity right now. And I think for us in reading history, you see how quickly public opinion can shift on a number of issues mm -hmm. over years or even sometimes months. I remember in particular the civil rights movement you saw in 1962, 1963, at that time, public opinion for civil rights legislation was at like 4%. And in 1970, 
And after they hold hundreds of actions across the country, after thousands of people are arrested and like young people are out in the streets getting fire hosed and attacked with dogs, you see public opinion in this country completely shift. And I think that's the exact thing that people are saying now about the climate crisis, right? right? They said politicians will never care. You can never make the public care. The truth is people haven't tried. Now, of course, there were lots of environmental groups out there, lots of people trying. But those groups were focused on other things, lobbying Congress, filing lawsuits, working on policy. What Varshini was talking about was something that didn't exist yet on climate change, a mass movement of everyday people that was so big, politicians and people in power couldn't ignore it. And our bet is that if you can actually engage that demographic of people, which is usually young, which is usually people of color, which is usually working people. If you can mobilize and engage and activate that group of people, that is enough to create a seismic shift in American politics to which we are now operating in a new common sense and and the political weather has utterly changed um, and new things become possible. Right. And so I would wager that If we are able to do that, the positions of people like Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump become virtually untenable. Like, get on board the ship, and if you don't, we're coming for your jobs. Varshini and her co-founders called this new organization the Sunrise Movement. It launched officially in 2017, and they got to work immediately recruiting students on college campuses. They would stage these protests where they would demand that elected officials stop taking money from the fossil fuel industry. And a lot of times, they would sing. Singing was sort of their calling card. The goal is basically to force politicians to acknowledge that climate change wasn't some abstraction. It was their future. And all this is happening in the lead up to this big midterm election for Congress. And that election in November of 2018 was this huge wave, and the Democrats took control of the House of Representatives. Activists hoped that a new Democrat-controlled House would be more open to climate legislation than the Republican-controlled House had been. But just before the election, news reports suggested that Democrats weren't actually going to make climate change a top priority. So the Sunrise Movement, they planned their biggest action yet— they decided to stage a sit-in in the office of the Democratic leader, Nancy Pelosi, who was about to become Speaker of the House with the power to control the policy agenda. But they weren't sure whether they could actually pull this off. And so they reached out to a new member of Congress for help. That new member, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC for short. And of course, she was this political phenom. She'd beaten one of the most powerful Democrats in the House in a primary that sent shockwaves throughout the political establishment. She'd literally been elected days before, hadn't even been sworn in yet. She was just in D.C. for her congressional orientation. And Sunrise thought, as a high-profile new member of Congress, it would be great to get her on board. So they reached out to her office, asking if AOC could help publicize this event in some way. Their request made its way to Shoykat Chakrabarty, AOC's chief of staff. And uh, it was like, you know, this really cool youth group that actually seems to be legit. They want to do the sit-in in Pelosi's office. Uh, they want you to tweet about it or you could join them as sort of a half joke. And she's like, oh, yeah, of course, I definitely will join them. <laughs> I was like, OK. But AOC's team told Sunrise, 
If you're going to do a big sit-in and AOC is going to join you, you need a clear message, something for people to rally around. You should ask for something big. And AOC's team actually had something they thought would be great for that big ask, this idea that people could rally around. It was an idea her team had been developing for a huge economic mobilization to tackle climate change. It's meant to be not just like a climate change solution. It's meant to be this economic mobilization program to solve climate change and through that build wealth for the vast majority of Americans. Something like the New Deal of the 1930s, this massive government mobilization designed to dig America out of the Great Depression. The original New Deal included huge job programs to put people back to work. Also, a ton of things that you take for granted today. Social security, the federal minimum wage, rural electrification, which is harder to say than it sounds. (laughs) And my personal favorite, the Civilian Conservation Corps which involves lots of tree planting and other work to restore habitats. And internally, AOC's team was actually calling their idea a Green New Deal. Like the original New Deal, this Green New Deal would be expansive. It wouldn't just focus on transforming the energy system. It would have to transform the entire economy. And AOC's team suggested to Sunrise, maybe you should ask for that, a Green New Deal. That suggestion kicked off a debate. Here's Varshini. We know we needed some kind of popular demand that would ultimately become the rallying cry on climate. We went through a few different iterations of it. It was like Green New Deal. There was like a green jobs guarantee. There was like green jobs for all. There was a bunch of different versions of it. But ultimately, it came down to the final moment of actually deciding that that was going to be the term, moving on with it, and then uh, kind of like unleashing it on the day of the actual sit-in. So wait, are you, (laughs) is what you're saying that like this concept? What I'm saying is that moment could have been really messed up and we might've done green jobs guarantee and imagine what would have happened. (laughs) 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 We were this close guys, this close. (laughs) It turned out settling on the demand for a green new deal, that was a turning point one that would play a huge role in the sea change in U.S. climate politics we talked about at the beginning and set the stage for Biden's ambitious climate plan. But in that moment, in those anxious days before the sit-in, none of the people involved actually knew it was a turning point. If you guys had come down on the other sort of idea, a green jobs guarantee, do you think we would be where we are today? No. 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 No, I don't think so. Varshini is vigorously shaking her head for the listeners. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why not? I don't know. I mean, it, it, a lot of it goes back to the namesake, right? Like there's something about the New Deal, the the level of both movement building and policy making and legislating and governing that we have to do in the next decade to combat the climate crisis has really similar parallels to the New Deal. And I think Mm -hmm. this was able to capture the imagination and the scale in a way that was fully different than, say, just like a green jobs for all kind of thing, which when you think about it, sounds like something that like Hillary Clinton would have said on the like 2016 campaign (laughs) show, you know? And it's just more hashtagable, you know? (laughs) Green New Deal. It's a better hashtag. Yeah. And so the day came. 250 young activists from the Sunrise Movement crammed into Nancy Pelosi's office and lined the halls outside, demanding that she set up a special committee to design a Green New Deal. And just as she'd promised, AOC joined the protesters in Pelosi's office. What we can really do is give courage, give courage to the people of 
give courage to those Democrats and to those Republicans even. Give courage to elected officials who may be walking. And we want to let them know that if they commit to a Green New Deal, we will have their back, we will knock on their doors, we'll make sure they get reelected in every... And we talked about this in our recent episode, The Green Wave, about how the Green Deal took off in Europe and how this moment was when the idea really blew up. AOC later admitted that she was terrified that she had just ended her political career before it even began. But the fact that she challenged her leadership, that's what caught the media's attention. That's what made this moment go viral. And suddenly, the Green New Deal was everywhere. On Capitol Hill, police arrested 51 youth climate activists Tuesday as they held a nonviolent sit-in protest out inside the office of House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi, demanding a Green New Deal and urgent action on climate change. Ocasio-Cortez also called for a Green New Deal by 2020. Here in the United States, incoming House Democrats like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez want what they call a Green New Deal, moving the United States toward using 100% renewable energy. And there was one person in particular who was watching all this unfold. I think it maybe was a CNN story. I don't remember exactly what story, but I remember seeing the photo and I was like, oh, wow. Oh, it's popping off. Oh, it's popping <laughs> off right now. This is Rihanna Gunn-Wright. And at that moment, she was one of the few people on Earth who knew what was in a Green New Deal because she was writing it. She was working for a brand new progressive think tank that most people in Washington, D.C. had not even heard of yet. And for the past couple months, she had been tasked with coming up with ideas for a Green New Deal. She'd heard that the Sunrise Movement was taking this demand to Congress, but she hadn't expected this. It was like, oh, this is getting a lot of attention. And nothing I had worked on had gotten that much attention. And I just knew that that's the sort of resonance for an idea that people dream of, right? That we're all working for. So I think, like, for me particularly, it felt very wild. Just being um, a Black woman from the South Side of Chicago, from a neighborhood that is one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city, and... It was just like a rapid accumulation of power and notice around both an idea and around my involvement in it. That was just so new and so um, unexpected that it took me a while to sort of get to grips with it. Rihanna had been hired to put this Green New Deal concept into words by a group called New Consensus. They were part of this same group of progressive thinkers as the folks on AOC's campaign. This was in the summer of 2018, a few months before the sit-in. New Consensus hired Rihanna because she was a rising star in progressive policy circles. She'd been policy director for Abdul El-Sayed, a young progressive candidate who ran an impressive but ultimately unsuccessful campaign to be governor of Michigan. New Consensus needed a star like Rihanna to help them develop this bold new idea. Initially, when they came to me, the goals of the Green New Deal were zero emissions, zero waste, zero poverty. And I was like, can't, can't, can't get you all that. Uh, <laughs> if I could, I'd be making a lot more money. <laughs> so Rihanna got to work figuring out what a Green New Deal actually could do. She knew that like the New Deal, she wanted it to be expansive. It wouldn't just focus on transforming the energy system. It would have to transform the entire economy. 
Rihanna and the Sunrise Movement and AOC's team, they were arguing that in the past, the climate movement talked way too much about polar bears and parts per million. And what had been missing was a focus on jobs and justice, specifically a focus on communities that had traditionally been left out. Poor communities, rural communities, communities of color, who are often the ones most harmed by our current fossil fuel economy. A lot of folks, I mean, who have been working on climate their entire lives were not talking or thinking about climate uh, change or the climate crisis as an outgrowth of racial oppression or white supremacy or racial capitalism, right? So, like, these are leaps for people. So we have to bring them along establish the validity of these ideas to some extent, prove them. And so a lot of my work was honestly doing that. But lots of people she would talk to were like, really, does it need to be this big? Why do we need all this stuff about social and racial justice and climate legislation? Rihanna got very tired of answering these questions. There's only so many times you can answer that question as a person of color and not feel like you are saying, hmm, well, you should make sure that people like me don't die and get sick because, right? And I just, ultimately now at this point, I don't like to do that. Yeah, You shouldn't do it because it's wrong, right? And like, we have to ask ourselves to be better, right? Instead of just asking people of color to constantly tell us why they matter and why mm-hmm. they shouldn't be left aside as, Essentially a policy solution, because that's the other thing that's really frustrating about it, is that essentially dumping pain on people of color is a policy solution in the U.S., right? Like, we use people of color as a buffer, and we're finally facing a problem where that's not possible. There are not enough Black people to throw between the sun and the earth. (laughs) (laughs) There just aren't, right? Like, we, there's no way to solve this while maintaining a racial hierarchy, really, truly. Rihanna and her team joined forces with the Sunrise Movement and AOC's team, and also Senator Ed Markey's team from Massachusetts, to turn the Green New Deal into something more concrete. And in February of 2019, a few months after the sit-in, AOC and Markey officially introduced the Green New Deal resolution in Congress, a 14-page document outlining these sweeping goals. They had 101 other congresspeople and 14 other senators officially on board and supporting it. The resolution calls for the U.S. to reach 100% zero-emission power by 2030. And it also calls for things like a federal jobs guarantee, universal health care, and affordable housing. And as we also talked about in our previous episode on this, Republicans and conservative media attacked the plan as unrealistic and dangerous. And even many establishment Democrats were skeptical. Nancy Pelosi herself called it the green dream. But the part of the story that we didn't tell in that episode is what actually happened here in the United States. That idea did capture the imagination of a huge group of people here and completely changed the stakes in American politics as well. And that became clear in a big way in the Democratic primary for president. Good evening, everyone. I'm Lester Holt, and welcome to the first Democratic debate in the 2020 race for president. Hi, I'm Savannah Guthrie, and tonight it's our You may remember this early in the primaries. There were something like two dozen candidates for president, Beto O'Rourke, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Andrew Yang. And a young policy walk named Maggie Thomas was working for one of those candidates, a guy named Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington state. And climate 
That was Inslee's issue. In the beginning, he was one of the only candidates with a serious, fleshed-out plan on climate, which Maggie says made him pretty unusual. It it was hard to fathom at the time that, you know, in a field where ultimately 23 people ended up running for president, that there was someone out there who was as credible and as well-versed on the issue as Governor Jansley, but also that there would be a whole team of people help (laughs) that were recruited to come work for this person. And you could actually have a job, like, with the title deputy climate director, which means that if you're the deputy, that means there's a climate director out there, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But Maggie says very quickly, her boss wasn't alone. All the candidates started coming out with big climate plans. And a big part of the reason was the Green New Deal. I remember thinking... This is very simple and distilled down into so few words. <laughs> why, <laughs> why have we overcomplicated it to this point? <laughs> but more than that, says Maggie Thomas. It's also an incredible organizing opportunity, right? It's a simple thing that you can get a candidate on the record to say yes or no. You know, no squirrely answer in the middle. Like, do you support the Green New Deal or do you not support the Green New Deal? And right. so because of that... We had every event on the road uh, for all of these candidates. You had young people trying to get them on the record and saying, hey, do you support this thing? Like, do you care about the future of our planet? Do do you care about the future that I'm going to live in and that I'm going to inhabit? Okay, well, I just proposed mine, so you can start with mine and then compare. Okay, do you think it matches up? I don't. Okay, well, then I guess the answer is no. So there's all these amazing videos of young people, like, teenagers going up to presidential candidates and trying to get them to commit to better climate policy, to the No Fossil Fuel Pledge. I'm just wondering how we can trust you when you've continually broken your pledge not to take fossil fuel money. To endorsing the Green New Deal. And it actually started to work. Over a period of a couple of months, nearly all of the major Democratic presidential candidates signed on to support the Green New Deal. And around 2,500 politicians have now signed the No Fossil Fuel Money Pledge. I love the vision of the Green New Deal. Uh, the, the framers of it have done us all a great service by, by energizing so many people around a vision. As President of the United States, I am prepared to get rid of the filibuster to pass a Green New Deal. What I am also talking about is a just transition. All right, we can create, and what the Green New Deal is about, it's a bold idea. We can create millions of good paying jobs. To me, what the Green New Deal says are a couple of really critical points. The first is the urgency of the moment. We're running out of time here. There was one high-profile exception to all of this, Joe Biden. He didn't endorse the Green New Deal, he still hasn't, and his climate plan was singled out by policy experts as pretty disappointing. Rihanna Gunn-Wright told us she thought his plan at the beginning was, quote, milk toast. And Varshini's organization, Sunrise, they rated all the candidates' climate plans. They gave the Biden plan initially an F-. minus. I think that was, like, maybe a bit extreme. <laughs> <laughs> and part of what is remarkable about people looking at Biden's plan this way was that by the standards of previous election cycles, his plan at the beginning was pretty good, arguably better, for example, than Hillary Clinton's plan from 2016. But the thing was, the bar had already been set much higher. Many of the other candidates' plans set ambitious deadlines to reduce emissions by 2030 in line with the most recent scientific projections. Biden's plan had a much later deadline. And in the debates, his opponents were hammering him for it. 
And we know this, middle ground solutions, like the vice president has proposed, or sort of middling uh, average sized things are not gonna save us. Too little, too late is too dangerous. This is Governor Jay Inslee in a debate in Michigan, attacking Joe Biden for his moderate positioning, the thing that had defined him as a candidate. Biden had a cautious, moderate plan on climate, and Jay Inslee was arguing that's just not good enough anymore. For example, this idea of the need to center racial justice that Rihanna was talking about. Just a year or two ago, that idea wasn't given much mainstream airtime, but now... Here was Jay Inslee taking Joe Biden to task on it in a presidential debate and getting applause for it. We also need to embed environmental justice. I was in zip code 48217 in the Detroit neighborhood the other day, right next to an oil refinery where the kids have asthma and they have cancer clusters. And after talking to these folks, I believe this, I believe this. It doesn't matter what your zip code Thank is. You, it Governor. doesn't matter what your color is. You ought to have clean Thank air and you, clean Governor. water in America. That's Vice what I Vice President believe. Biden, I'd like to get you to respond. Governor Inslee just said that your plan is middling. There's no middle ground about my plan. At this point, Biden does the political thing of trumpeting his accomplishments. He says, I helped negotiate the Paris Agreement when I was vice president. I'm going to get rid of oil and gas subsidies. And then the moderator asks him this follow-up. Thank you, Mr. Vice President. Just to clarify, would there be any place for fossil fuels, including coal and fracking, in a Biden administration? No, we would would work it out. We would make sure it's eliminated and no more subsidies for either one of those, either any fossil fuel. We can't, we cannot work it out. We cannot work this out. The time is up. Our house is on fire. We have to stop using coal in 10 years. And we need a president to do it or it won't get done. So Biden, who is usually a pretty centrist candidate, was finding himself more and more on the margins when it came to climate. And Maggie Thomas was watching this with amazement. She said that what was happening is something very rare in politics, and especially in climate politics. What was starting to emerge was a race to the top, a race for each candidate to outdo each other by who had the most ambitious and sophisticated climate plan. They would say, yes, I support the Green New Deal. And then then they were held accountable to actually write a really good climate plan. And even when Jay Inslee dropped out of the race, which he eventually did, and Maggie and her team of policy wonks were briefly out of a job, the competition among the candidates to outdo each other on climate, it just picked up steam. And Maggie wasn't out of work for long. We were actually busier the day after the governor dropped out of the race, which is not always exactly how you expect a presidential campaign to go. Um, (laughs) Having lost a few jobs on campaigns, I can assure you that you mostly have a lot of free time after your candidate drops out of the race. Um, And, you know, we had Kamala Harris's team calling us saying, hey, will you line edit our climate plan that we're going to put out? We had a call with Julian Castro's team saying, hey, Uh we've been waiting to put this out, but we just have a few things that, you know, can, can we just check in with you on a few policy ideas that we've got here? And perhaps the greatest example of this race to the top involves you, Ayana. I did get in the mix for a little bit there, yeah. You did get in the mix. So Maggie eventually got hired by Elizabeth Warren to help her craft her climate plan. And of course, Elizabeth Warren, if there is a race to the top for policy proposals, that is a race she does not want to lose. And just a week after Maggie shows up for work, Elizabeth Warren is on TV at the CNN Climate Town Hall when this guy you know, Ayana, this guy Bren Smith, a fisherman turned ocean farmer, 
asks a question. Brent, what's your question? Hi, Brent. Those of us that work on the water, we need climate solutions and we need them now. The trouble is... And I saw that, Bren, on the screen, and I jumped off the couch and started yelling, I know him! (laughs) He's going to ask about the ocean! You guys! So what's your plan for a Blue New Deal for those of us working on the ocean? I like that! Immediately, Senator Warren said, Yes, absolutely. I think that's a great idea. Of course, we need to be, you know, thinking about our oceans as as part of our climate solution set. That happened, you know, on national television. And then a few emails later, down the chain, I got an email that was like, well, the first plan that you'll be working on will be a Blue New Deal. <laughs> <laughs> that our boss just promised yes. on, t- on national television. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that we, that we just committed to on national television. So um, get to work. You've been here for about one week. Good job. <laughs> and that's when I called... Ayana and I was sort of like, please, please help. Let's get to work. And I roped Ayana into probably a lot more than she bargained for. But we ended up writing the Blue New Deal together, which, as Senator Warren often told me, was the most popular climate plan that she heard about on the road. I remember standing in my mom's kitchen on the phone with her being like, am I am I about to help Elizabeth Warren write a plan? <laughs> and it was super exciting. It was all about ocean economy and all these different carbon solutions, offshore renewable energy, and the work that Bren does on, you know, regenerative farming of the ocean. We'll do an episode on it one day because, like, this is my jam. (laughs) But for now, it's important to think about this in the context of, like, how far this idea of a Green New Deal spread that it was spinning off these other deals, basically. But in the end, of course... The candidate who won was Joe Biden, who had not endorsed the Green New Deal. And that race to the top among his opponents, it did not help them beat him. And at this point, the worry was, well, does this mean all those ambitious climate plans like the Blue New Deal, they're kind of out the window? But a funny thing happened after Joe Biden won the nomination. This race to the top, it actually continued. And Biden ended up joining it. How all that played out? That's coming up after the break. So in our story, the primaries have just wrapped up. The only major candidate who hasn't signed on to the Green New Deal is the nominee, Joe Biden. And usually this is the moment when candidates tack back to the center, right? Conventional wisdom is during the primaries, when you're only talking to your own party, you can be more, in the case of the Democrats, you can be more left-leaning. But once you're the nominee, you have to appeal to centrists and swing voters, so you often tack to the middle. But that's not what Biden did on climate. In fact, he did the opposite. One of the first things he did, says Maggie Thomas, was call her old boss, Jay Inslee. Joe Biden called Governor Inslee and said, hey, I know that you're the climate guy. And, you know, will you help me and my team with, with my climate plan? And then Biden went even further. At the end of the primary, his last standing opponent was Bernie Sanders, who we know is pretty far left. And after Sanders withdrew, Biden agreed to set up these unity task forces. These were small groups of experts who would suggest changes to Biden's platform and hopefully help unite the party. So Biden would appoint some folks and Sanders would appoint some people. And when it came to climate, Sanders appointed a co-chair, AOC, And another person he appointed was Varshini Prakash, co-founder of the Sunrise Movement. So five years ago, 
Varshini was a young activist imagining a movement that would actually take power seriously. She and her friends had willed that movement into existence. They'd grown the movement large enough to amass real power, and they'd exercise that power to influence the political conversation. And now, here she was, helping to develop the climate plan for the man who could be the next president. Although, actually, in the age of COVID, it wasn't that glamorous. I mean, it was literally two hours of Zoom calls every week where we were on a Zoom with John Kerry and all these Congress people and little old me in this exact room that you are seeing me right now. This was the exact backdrop where it all happened. Some good um, exposed bricks and some was, party lights. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and everyone's probably like four decades older on average. So that was something. Um, so was it contentious? Were people like really, you know, arguing and, and hashing it out? The places where we agreed the least were on the normal stuff. Like they didn't want to go in on, you know, banning fracking or phasing out fossil fuels because I think they see it as a really linchpin kind of political issue and don't want to upset people in Pennsylvania. Although there's a lot of evidence to point that it might not. Um, we obviously wanted them to be more ambitious than they were, but there, there were some areas where we were able to push and get movement. So for example, we went from a goal around decarbonizing the power sector by 2050 to 2035. You know, we moved that timeline up by 15 years, which is huge because it yeah, means, that's massive. you know, Joe Biden has to get moving on some of those goals by like tomorrow. And in July, Biden released his new climate plan the way more ambitious climate plan that we talked about at the beginning of this episode. And he gave this big speech just about the climate. And the way he spoke about it, it sounded a lot like the way the activists talked about the Green New Deal. When Donald Trump thinks about climate change, the only word he can muster is hoax. When I think about climate change, the word I think of is jobs. Good paying, union jobs. Despite all of that, Biden still goes out of his way to say he doesn't support the Green New Deal specifically. For example, in the recent presidential debate. Our great polluting plan. Do you support build the re- Green New Deal? P- pardon me? Do you support the- No, I don't support the Green oh, New Deal. Oh, you don't? Oh, well, well that's a big let, statement. I support that means you the, just the radical left. I, su- okay. I support oh, the don't. Biden plan. But for so many of us who want meaningful action on climate change, who want to see major federal policy initiatives— It doesn't really matter what we call it, just as long as it's serious and big enough to make a real difference. And Varshney says Biden's plan would be a major step forward. And I think if we are able to do that, like if Joe Biden, like what he's talking about, is able to do a $2 trillion green jobs and infrastructure plan in the first four years of his administration, that will kind of like force all of these market signals and kind of create a culture shift and a switch in, I think, U.S. politics that we have no idea how, you know, quickly that could bring us to realizing the full vision of a Green New Deal. So you know how Varshney said that thing about how sometimes these political facts, they seem immutable, but then they can change relatively quickly. Is that sort of what it feels like to you now watching all this go down around climate? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I never thought 2020 would become like, a climate election with this whole who has the best climate plan thing happening. It happened much faster than I thought it would. And and for sure, it's because of this uh, immense public pressure that the candidates were receiving. 
And then, of course, there is the actual changing climate as well. Climate change is getting more and more in our faces. It's becoming harder and harder to ignore. Stronger hurricanes, freak tornadoes, massive wildfires. And certainly this idea of a Green New Deal is really unifying. It gave young people who are trying to fight for a livable future a concrete ask to hold politicians accountable to. It's this simple framing that helped push the debate forward towards action. But of course, getting politicians to acknowledge climate change and make plans to address it, that's just step one. None of that does any good if the politicians you've convinced don't get elected. And we talked to Rihanna Gunwright, expert on the Green New Deal, about this election and how important it is. What do you want our listeners to know about what's at stake for climate change in this election? I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, it's tough. Because on one hand, I want to say everything, but that's not true, right? Like, it's not like if this election's over. It's like, pack it all in, guys. Let's just buckle down for the apocalypse. And I don't think that that is actually what we should be telling people. But I will say that, like, the kind of world that you and I lived in, have known, that our parents have known, that likely won't exist if Trump is reelected. And that's just the reality of it. Climate change is moving too fast. And we're already at too, like, too much of a threshold point. Like, if we don't do anything in the next four years, it's going to be, it's going to be bad. And, like, bad. What would you say to people who are thinking of sitting this election out because they're not excited enough about the climate plan that Biden has put forward? In many ways, like, I get it. Someone's asking me, like, something about the right or the left. And I'm like, listen, I grew up in a city where I've never known a Demo- any mayor that wasn't a Democratic mayor. And I've also never known a city that didn't have double the Black unemployment rate. Right? Like, I, the, the community I'm from was definitely forgotten. And not for, forgotten is too, uh, too passive. They ab- abandoned in large part, my community and a lot of communities like mine in Chicago. And that was a Democrat. And so I get it. Like, I get not wanting to vote. And I get why you would not want to continue to vote for a party that often says one thing and does another, right? Um, but I guess the thing, and I, and I was at on a talk and a, an activist called Vic Barrett said this, and it really struck me. He was like, vote is an act of community, Right. In a time where especially we're talking about climate change as a communal challenge, it's something that's facing us all. Well, then vote like it's facing us all. And for me, I'm just like, I have one goal, which is I'm not trying to do this shit in 50 years. I'm not trying to be an activist. I'm I'm trying to sit down, bake some cakes, look at some nature and mind my damn business. (laughs) goals that's that is my goal that and so like and for that to happen people 
We can't be, fi- we can't be squabbling. <laughs> we fixed we just, this whole climate crisis thing so we could just crisis. like get back to our pastries. <laughs> I have things to do. And yeah. so like that is Same. my goal. So for me, I'm like, I don't, let's just like do it. I'm just trying to kick it. That That's sounds it. great. That's my whole goal. Let's deal with this so we can, can all uh, kick it. Kick it? Can <laughs> yes, we can. Can I uh, kick it? Yes, we can. So there's one question we ask to all of our guests. You kind of answered it already. How screwed are we? Honestly, I actually I tend to think we're not that screwed. And Yes. And this, I don't, I don't think we're that screwed. Um, Alex and I are both like stunned, but also excited yes. by your answer. <laughs> Tell us more. Well, the thing that like makes me hopeful is like most of the problems that we have are not natural. They didn't come out of the air. We created them. And if we created something, you can uncreate it. It's not going to happen overnight. But a lot of the things that we think about often, political calculus, all of that stuff is incredibly mutable and incredibly shiftable. Uh, and take it from me, it is uh, terrifyingly uh, easy to hack the national conversation <laughs> in certain <laughs> circumstances. Um, and so just the fact that like we created it reminds me that we can always do something different. Because if you built the thing, you can... <laughs> literally take it apart. And that is our episode for today. We are not screwed. We can take apart the thing we have built and build something new. And the first step is voting. And specifically, as we said in the beginning, we think you should vote for Joe Biden. He has a plan, and thanks to the work of many, many people, it's actually a good one. If you vote now, you can do your part not only to elect the candidate who will take action on the climate, but also you can do your part to ensure that Rihanna Gunwright can bake cakes in peace 50 years from now. Who <laughs> does not want that future? I definitely want that future. So please check out vote.org to make sure you're registered to vote, to register if you haven't already, to find your polling station, and to get information on mail-in ballots for your state. And then there's a few other things you can do. You can check out the Sunrise Movement. They have a bunch of actions they suggest taking this political season, so find them online. In particular, they recommend checking out the Thrive Agenda, which builds on the Green New Deal. You can also read Joe Biden's climate plan for yourself and listen to his speech in July where he laid out how he's thinking about climate change. And you can read the Blue New Deal. We have links to all of this in our show notes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Alex, take it away. How to Save a Planet is a Spotify original podcast and Gimlet production. You can follow us at How to Save a Planet. That is how the number two save a planet on Twitter and Instagram. Or you can email us at How to Save a Planet, not the number two, How to Save a Planet at Spotify.com. How to Save a Planet is hosted by Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson and me, Alex Bloomberg. Our reporters and producers are Rachel Waldholtz, Kendra Pierre-Lewis, Anna Ladd, and Felix Poon. Our senior producer is Lauren Silverman. Our editor is Caitlin Kenny. Sound design, mixing, and original music by Emma Munger. Additional music by Peter Leonard, Katherine Anderson, and Billy Libby. Special thanks to Rachel Strom. We will see you next week. <laughs>